0: Hey, everyone. Parham, host of the Personal Process Podcast. So just wanted to give a quick disclosure. You know, we went deep for like three, four hours with Dan. Amazing episode. And uh, just wanted to give a quick notice because there were some, you know, topics that some people may not want to hear right now. And it has a topic of death and specifically suicide. So If this is something that would trigger you, I just wanted to give an upfront notice so you have the decision to move forward with this episode or not. Beyond that, this episode did contain a lot of swearing. Um, I did my absolute best to cut out the swear words and replace it with the word "zoom" just to make it a little fun, but I probably didn't get to all of them, so just a heads up on that front. And with regards to certain names or company names used, I replaced that with the word loop to make it fun again and also, you know, I felt like it probably wasn't the best thing to put on the internet and that's what we agreed on with Dan. So with that said, still an amazing episode, lots of value from global affairs to politics to Bitcoin and how he ran for the presidential election race in 2016 in the United States of America. Welcome to the Personal Process Podcast. Podcasting worldwide from Vancouver, Canada. Canada. Welcome back to the Personal Process Podcast. The show that takes you through the growth, hardship, self-discovery, lessons, and stories of individuals who achieved success in their own personal path.
1: Trust the process.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the Personal Process Podcast. Today's episode, we have Dan Marshall, Bitcoin advocate. And believe it or not, he was actually running in 2016 for the president. That is really, really cool. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I've always been interested in Bitcoin. I learned a little bit about it, you know, crypto mining and all that kind of jazz. But I'm definitely a rookie when it comes to that. And I'm glad to have an expert like Dan here. So with that said, Dan, how are you doing? And is there any other points that I missed that you'd like to touch up on before we get into it? Oh
2: man, no, I'm I'm great. First of all, thank you, Parm, for for having me on the show, and oh, uh, hey. I'm glad I saw your post on the Bitcoin subreddit. I guess you know I I'm a lot of different things. Um, first of all, I want I want to just clarify, I don't consider myself a Bitcoin expert. I've been in the space for about seven years. Um, I'm a huge tech nerd, right? Like I'm a technical consultant. I've been a nerd my entire life. I I had never done anything with investing or really finances or anything beyond like a, just a four hundred one k. Um, until I got into Bitcoin seven years ago. So like, not, I, I don't know, I try really hard to set the expectation that like, I'm not an expert, but I've definitely followed the space for a while. And I, and I know a bit about, you know, I, I come from like a cybersecurity background. So like, I, mm-hmm. I have a keen interest in, um, you know, OPSEC. So like making sure that your uh, hardware wallet and your Bitcoin uh, setup is, is secure. Um, and then I also, I, I, uh, my last job before my current position, I worked for a cybersecurity company that dealt with, um, email phishing. So I'm also really, wow. um, interested in following scams in the space because I, I, find them personally fascinating. I've always been interested in, um, information security and hacking and fr- from like a, from like a blue team perspective, you know, yeah, from yeah. A, how, how do we stop this? Not a, how do I do this necessarily? <laughs> um, And so, you know, it's weird to kind of see those worlds collide too, right? Because with Bitcoin, you've got this like new technology that a lot of people don't understand, even like, I mean, I don't even fully understand it. I'm a huge nerd, you know? And then you've also got, it's like really unregulated right now, right? So it's like a bad combination because it's like something that a lot of people don't understand and something that there aren't a lot of rules around. It draws a lot Mm. of scammers. And so because of that, I keep my eye out for scams in the space so that I can maybe help people not. Uh, lose their money, but then beyond all that, I mean, so I, like you mentioned, I'm a Bitcoin nerd. I'm a technical consultant at my day job. Um, I'm right. also a musician. Uh, I, I've been a musician for most of my life, mainly a singer, but I do play um, guitar and a little bit of piano. Um, and then I'm also an author. I wrote uh, a novel uh, about seven years ago, a uh, science science fiction uh, uh, cyberpunk dystopia novel. It's called wow. The White Cap. Um, yeah. And then I also yeah. wrote a. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I also I wrote a second book. it's It's sort of a strange project. It's like I, I call it like my my I put nonfiction in quotes. It's uh I, you know not to I hope I don't offend anybody by saying that, but um, I made a uh, an updated version of the Jefferson Bible, which I don't know if you're wow. familiar with the Jefferson Bible or not. But uh, they, do, you
0: mind, do you mind letting us know a little bit what that's about
2: sure yeah a lot a lot of people don't know about this i i learned about it after school like i never learned about it in school it's one of those things that i learned about like extracurricularly um yeah. so thomas jefferson you know was a deist right like So I I don't know if a lot of people know what deism is because it's not like super popular now, but I guess you could, and, and, you know, I'm not an expert, I'm not a a theologian or anything, but it's my understanding that deism is basically sort of like, like God is the the universe and like nature. It's sort of like naturalism, Mm. right? Like Walt Whitman, that kind of stuff, Um, similar schools of thought anyway. Anyway, so, so Jefferson took the four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he removed what he called, uh, I believe he called it like the, the dreck and the dross. Basically he went through the gospel story and he removed, he removed all of the, the like, well, not all, he removed a lot of the like miraculous, uh, stories. Uh, he removed a lot of the like claims of divinity that, mm. that were attributed to Jesus in the gospel, leaving what he believed to be like the distilled moral lessons of Jesus Mm -hmm. Um, really interesting read. I mean, honestly, I think that, you know, I I would think that most people would benefit from reading it because I think that it paints a very different picture of Jesus than what a lot of people might have in their head. Um, however, he used the King James version of the Bible to do this. He actually did it in like four different languages. He used the King James version for the English. I think he did like the Latin Vulgate. He did like a French copy and then some other language i mean you know thomas jefferson was a very smart man he spoke several languages so what he did was i mean he literally cut and paste like he took a razor blade right that was like old school copy and paste yeah um, cut and paste and uh he cut out the parts of the bible that he did not like and he re like redid the four gospels and um Now, the Jefferson Bible title is something that that other people have given that work. I believe he titled it something like um, "The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth" or something like that. Mm. Um, he he did not want it published during his lifetime. I think he knew, you know, that it was. I mean, even I mean, at the time, I mean, even now, it's controversial to to like edit the Bible, right? But especially mm-hmm. in 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 that time frame, I'm pretty sure there are some people that would have like burned him at the stake for that. And so it was, uh, it was published uh, posthumously, uh, yep. but it's a very interesting read. And, and so uh, anyway, I, I think I have it priced right now at like 99 cents on Amazon. If, if any of your readers are list, uh, interested in that, I'll double yeah. check it. And if, it, if it's, I think the normal price point is like three bucks. I, I did it as, a, as, a, as more of a personal project. It's not really like right. I have a day job, you know, like I'm not, yeah, yeah. I'm not an author to like pay my bills. I'm an author because I had things that I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. And so,
0: yeah um, for sure. Dan, I should have asked you what aren't you interested in? What don't you do? <laughs> I mean, you know,
2: I'm not a big sports guy, so it's hey. it weird because I uh, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, which yep. is a big uh, you know big Ohio State Buckeyes like college football. Yep. I, I now live about an hour north of Seattle, which, by the way, I, I heard in your intro that you're in Vancouver. So that's that's cool. I'm uh, I'm like 10 minutes south of the border. So once everything yep. opens back up, man, we should get together for like some some hot pot or something up in Vancouver.
0: <laughs> oh, 100%. Get some filler or something going. Love it. Exactly. So, yeah. So, you know, Dan, you, you know, you, you've done a lot, author, you know, cybersecurity, and we talked, you know, off air about how Bitcoin became a story and how that kind of, you know, I don't want to say changed your life, because that might be a little bit too dramatic, but it played a big role. So how about we get into that, you know, and I want to take it all the way back, because that's kind of how we do it over here. Sure. You know, tell, tell me about childhood. Tell me about, you know, the start, wherever you want to start with that.
2: Man, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I was born in Columbus, Ohio, uh, yep. born in 19, 1980. And so I, I like to phrase it. I mean, I personally think that, you know, hundreds of years from now, um, that this will be called the information age. And, mm-hmm. and I, so I, I like to phrase it that I was born at sort of the burgeoning. I won't say the very beginning, right? Cause I think you could trace the information age back a few decades before the eighties, but sure. I think that, I think that within my lifetime, like when I was born, there were almost no computers anywhere. Yep. And now there are computers everywhere, everywhere. In, in everything. Everything yep. has a processor almost my toaster as a, sorry, I, I swear. Sometimes I will try not to, That's um, okay. My my toaster has a has a microprocessor in it, you know. Yeah. Like it's it's uh, and so I feel really fortunate to have been born at a time when I was born, and not only to have been born at that time, but to have had the opportunities that that I have had in my lifetime. Like uh, f- for instance, just one example. Um, my dad bought a, an IBM PC AT in 1984. It was right. a beast of a machine. Like I was a four year old kid, I couldn't even pick it up. It was so heavy. Um, and and I remember he paid like four thousand dollars for it, yep. which you know 1984 money. I don't even know what that is nowadays. You know, with inflation, it's probably like eight to ten grand or something like that. Maybe you know, um, maybe. Yeah, maybe more. But what was really cool about it is that even though he bought this like super expensive thing, he recognized like the potential for that to be like a a learning thing for me and he let me use it like un unguarded you know like he wasn't sitting over my shoulder I mean I remember playing like math blaster I remember messing around with like DOS like learning DOS commands you know just just through trial and error man you know and uh and so that was like my introduction to technology I had really early access compared to my peer group right most of my friends that are my same my same age anyway most of my friends did not have a computer until the 90s in their home some yeah. of them didn't even have access to it in school in, until the '90s, right? Because I grew up when I was a little kid. I lived in Southern Ohio, which is like, like when we got that computer, I lived mm-hmm. in an area uh, called Logan, Ohio. Which, if you want to look it Logan. up, I mean, it's a very like economically depressed area. There used to right. be a lot of industry there, and like a lot of places in America, that industry has gone away over the decades, and there are a right. lot of closed down factories. It's, uh, you know, I remember. I remember taking the bus to school and there was a, we lived out in the country and so yeah. it was about an hour, hour bus ride to school. And I remember driving by like literal shanties, you know, just like wow. lean twos. Like there was like a rock face. I remember that we would drive wow. by and there were there's lean twos against that. I mean, there's so like, you know, I, I, I was not, I was not in this right. Like my dad was retired. He was, I won't say well off, but like we, you know, I never went hungry, you know yeah. um, but I grew up around the kind of poverty that, people don't think really exists in america um and it does and and i and i do think you know at the time i don't think i really i mean for you know like well i moved to logan when i was like six seven years old so like you you know you're just like a kid you don't really think about that kind of stuff it's not as present maybe Um, but i but i think that you know now that now that i'm an adult and i think back on that stuff i mean i do think that that definitely had a a real impact on me Um, anyway I, i lived there until i was about nine years old Uh, and then at that point, uh, about, about a month before my 10th birthday, my dad actually committed suicide. Um, he shot himself in the head. Uh, no, thank you. I I appreciate that. It's, you know, it was definitely a, uh, he, uh, he shot himself in the head and then I came home from school and found him. So like it, it it's not my childhood, man. Like I, I would say that probably it took me, I I mean, I'm sure that on some level I'm probably still not over it, like fully over it. I don't know that you really ever, you know, get over something like that. Like, um, but, I will say that it messed up my childhood for a while. Like I was a, I was a really angry kid. Um, and and I mean, not even just angry. I mean, like, honestly just hurt. Like I was a really just hurting kid and, uh, I had to, I had to move at that point. Like I was, um, my parents divorced when I was really young. And so my dad had pretty much full-time custody of me. I prior to the age of nine from about the age of like two to nine, I only saw my mom uh, about every other weekend. Right. And so I went from seeing her twice a month to living with her full time. I was also just like a traumatized kid. So like, it was a rough time, I think for both of us, you know, like we, we struggled for a few years of like finding a cadence. Um, and, yeah. you know, it was, it was weird too, because I moved, like my dad lived in Logan, Ohio. Yep. And so I lived there with him. And then when he died, I moved from Logan, Ohio to Dublin, Ohio. And I encourage anybody listening to this to look up both of those cities and compare the demographics, Dublin, Ohio, uh, you may have heard of it because it's known for, I can't remember the name because again, not a sports guy, but it's known for a very well-known yearly um, golfing event that brings in like major money from all over the world. Dublin is a very um, affluent community and right. we didn't really have money, right? Like we lived in an apartment. I got made fun of because I wore like LA gear shoes and I didn't have a starter jacket because that was what all the cool rich kids had. You know, they had like yeah. the, the Nike shoes and the starter yeah. Uh, jacket and stuff like that. And like, I didn't, I didn't have any of that stuff. And so uh, it was a weird experience. Um, Anyway, I mean, I I moved around a lot as a kid, like we lived in Dublin for a couple of years. And then my stepdad, uh, his mom passed away and left him a house. Um, And so we ended up moving to a suburb of Columbus called Grandview Heights, uh, where I ended up living for the rest of like high school and, and, you know, into adulthood. Um, And then after that, man, once I moved out at 18, I lived, I mean, I've lived on almost every, every part of the city of Columbus, like every area except for like the South side. So I know Columbus, Ohio very well. Um, in 2008, uh, I moved uh, briefly. I I was dating a gal that, uh, ended up going to Carnegie Mellon for grad school. And I, I moved to Pittsburgh with her. Um, it didn't work out. We, we only ended up dating, I think another like three or four months after that. So I didn't stay in Pittsburgh very long. Uh, came, came back to Ohio around 2000, like the end of 2008. Um, and then uh, it was, wasn't really, I don't know, it, was, it sort of felt like a defeat, right? To have left and then come back. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to try somewhere else, man. I'm going to try living somewhere else. And so I moved down oh. to uh, Sarasota, Florida. My parents have lived in that area for about the last 15 years. My cousin lives down there. And she had a, uh, my cousin had a two bedroom with an open bed, bedroom. And I thought, what the heck, I'll give it a shot. There you Hated go. Hated Florida, man. Too hot, too <laughs> many, too, too hot, too many old people. I'm not. Myself, I'm not like super conservative. I don't really jive with a lot of like conservative politics. And so uh, sure enough. I did not enjoy it there very much. Um, sure enough. And so I, uh, I ended up moving to uh, back to Ohio where I lived for like another year. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I was, I was dating a gal that uh, she started getting some like back pain. And I mean, the, the short version of the story is it went from like, I have back pain to a month and a half later, she was dead. And uh, it turns out she had like stage four ovarian cancer um, (sighs) and it was caught too late. And I basically, I basically had to just watch her die. I like held her hand as she took her last breath. It was a way to start 2011. She died like a weekend of 2011. And so, uh, so yeah, I found myself almost 10 years ago now, right? Like next, next month will be 10 years. I found myself in a spot where I was in a place where yeah, I grew up there, but, like, I didn't have much tethering me there at that point, right? My fam- mm-hmm. my parents had moved to Florida a decade before yep. that, a- almost a decade before that. My, you know, my love died. I lost my job shortly after that because uh, it's a long story, but, like, my performance suffered a little bit. And sure. at a time where I could have used a little bit of compassion, uh, my yep. employer didn't, I guess, have any to spare. And so by April, by April of that year, I found myself out of work. Um, had no real, there was nothing anchoring me to that place. And I had always wanted right. to move to, uh, Portland, I uh, visited Portland in the nineties when my, my sister and my brother both lived there at different times in the nineties. And I really liked it out there. I loved like the, the scenery and, yeah. you know, um, and so I thought, what the heck, man, like if there's ever a time to up and move across the country, I think this is it. And so in May of 2011, I packed up, I sold almost everything I owned. I packed wow. up my car with uh i had my i had my dog my cat uh a guitar amp um and uh two guitars and a banjo and a bag of clothes and i drove i was on the road 28 days um i took my time coming out here i took like a kind of a circuitous path through the southwest and then hit la and and came up the coast and uh you know stopped and stayed with mostly like family and friends along the way um i feel really fortunate i mean it's sort of a weird choice of words i guess like the 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 lead up to that was awful. Right. Like, right. But honestly the last half of 2011 was probably one of the better years of my life. I was still in a lot of pain. Um, I was still processing that loss, but like, man, what a, what a, what an opportunity. Like I got to see, you know, uh, I got to go through like Arizona. I had never been to the Southwest before I got to see parts of this country that I had just never seen. And, and, you know, we call them flyover states, but like, honestly, there's a lot of beauty in this country and a lot of good people. And so, uh, yeah. Anyway, landed on the west coast in 2011. Uh, a few years later, I ended up meeting my my now wife, um, and she uh, she had grown up in the. Thanks, yeah. She had, well, so so we started dating, and you know, we had been dating like a year or so. We were when she moved in with me. We were renting a place in Portland, and we wanted to buy a house. But yeah, I feel weird saying this to you because I know you live in Vancouver. But you know, I grew <laughs> up in Ohio, man. So like when I see yep. when I see a house that's like more than two hundred thousand American, I'm thinking like that's a mansion, right? Like 200 grand. I mean, that's almost a quarter of a million dollars, you know, turns out though, the 200 grand here isn't, it does not go very far, um, (laughs) especially in Portland. And so she said, well, I'd like to move closer to where I grew up. She grew up in Bellingham and I had never even heard of it when we started dating. And so we came up here and visited and I said, oh, this is great. I love it. Let's do it. And so four years ago, we moved up here yeah, I mean that's kind of the short version of <laughs> short. That's the shortish yeah. version of my my life from beginning up till roughly now. So yeah. Now I live in now I live in Bellingham. I've spent the last four years here. I uh, I work from home, and so this is my my home office. I actually have a, a 200 square foot detached home office that's behind my house. So we're about 20 feet behind my I house right that. now. Um, and this is my this is my home away from home. I am out here at least 40 hours a week for work, and and I come out here wow. for my you know my personal projects and my guitar playing and stuff as well.
0: So. Yeah. That's fantastic, Dan. And you know, just a couple of points I want to hit before we actually go into like how Bitcoin played a role in your life. Sure. You know, when when you're moving, just from the instruments that you're mentioning, it seems like half of the... Half of your luggage was instruments, if not more, and then half of it was your actual living belongings.
2: More than half. I mean, if you're oh, talking man. about, like, actual so, like volume volume up
0: in the car, yeah, yeah.
2: right, because, like, the guitar amp is, like, you know, <laughs> this big. The guitar cases are, like, this big. Yeah. My bag of clothes was literally a backpack. So, like, yeah, it was probably a three-to-one ratio of, like – instrument volume to, to close volume.
0: Oh my God, you, you know, you're a true musician when I, I love it. I love the dedication <laughs> on that front. And you know, Dan, one other point that I want to touch upon is because, you know, you, you went from living in an area that wasn't too well off to transitioning into an area that was well off. I know that you were a kid, but I want to ask you specifically, when you were a kid, did you notice any differences? And after when you grew up and had some time to reflect, are there any lessons that you can take from the different groups of individuals and kind of, I guess, lessons that would help both sides?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean, question. I will say first, first of all, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a great question. I think most great questions are tough questions. Um, <laughs> that, you know, it makes, makes you think, right. That's a good yeah. thing. Um, I think so. And, and again, like you mentioned, this is all through the lens of a child, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I will say that, you know, kids can be cruel Right. Mm-hmm. I was a little fat kid. I was a fat, nerdy kid that wore glasses. So, like, I, I didn't have a lot of friends always. Like, I've always been right. an outgoing person. So, I-, I know a lot of people, but I, I right. wouldn't necessarily say that I have a lot of friends because I don't really like a lot of people, really, if I'm being Fair honest. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I, I try, I do my best. I, I I try to, I try to assume the best in people. And when people rub sure. me the wrong way, I try to just imagine they're having a bad day, but I, I will admit, I'm not always great at that. Anyway, no. I, I will say that, you know, the, the, the kids that weren't as well off, it feels like that they were a little nicer. I mean, they had their mm. own struggles I think might've been part of it. Right. Like, like I went to school with kids that wore the same clothes because I don't, I maybe mean, they didn't have other clothes to wear or right. like kids that, you know, kids that, um, <laughs> K- kids that like that you know might not have been eating at home and the only meal that they got was at school um right and i think that when you're living in a an existence like that i think that it saps you of a lot of your energy i don't think that you have mm-hmm. i mean maybe maybe mm-hmm. you do have the desire but i don't know that you have the ability to follow through and like being sh- being like super shitty to other people you know, contrast okay. that with, like, the rich kids, right? And and not everybody. I want to be clear. Like, when I lived in Dublin, I had some really good friends. Like, my friend, Brian Turkelson. Give him a shout-out. We're still buddies. There you go. He lives down in Florida. He's a great guy. And he grew up, I mean, his parents are pretty well off, you know? So, like, I want to be clear that I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of casting a broad net here, but I'm not For trying sure. to include every fish in this net, you For know? For sure. But That's personal feels, experience. It feels like that the, the more affluent kids that, like, you know, when you have everything handed to you, man, like you just don't appreciate stuff. And, and it makes you, I think, I think in some people it makes you cruel because like mm. you, and I see it a lot in, in sort of affluent people now as an adult, right? This concept of like, well, I have this, or I was able to do this. So why can't you? And it's sort right. of this like one size fits all approach that it's just, yeah, it's just not realistic, man. It's just not how the world works. Like the world is, is. Very in, in my experience, i found in my little over 40 years of, of life on this planet, that very little on this earth is straight black and white. Like Almost everything is some shade of gray. And, and that's, you know, that I guess mm-hmm. if we're speaking just generally, it feels like that the poor kids, while they could definitely be mean. I mean, I'm not going to say that I never got made fun of by a poor kid, sure. right? Um, they had their own Zoom. that they were struggling with, I think, more. Mm-hmm. And that took more precedence than like, how can I cut other people down? sure the rich kids though and that's not to say that it's not a struggle to be rich because i mean like they're you know everybody has like their own different things but i I will say that like from from about the age of 10 from about the age of 10 to 18 i was surrounded by people that like i would say half of the kids that i went to high school with probably got a car just given to them on their 16th birthday you know i had to mow lawns and like save up money and i worked at AMC theaters in the concession stand to like save up money. I spent two grand on my first car. It was all my money. What do you got? Um, I got a a 1980 Toyota Cressida, actually. And man, that car was badass. I mean, I bought it in 1996, so it was pretty old when I bought it. But I bought it from the original owner, who was an older lady. It only had 70,000 miles on it, and it had power everything, man. It had a power sunroof. It had power windows. It had power seats. It had a freaking... In dash factory CD player, which I cannot even imagine what that would have cost <laughs> in 1980. That was probably a five thousand dollar upgrade just Jeez. for the CD player alone. I loved that car, that thing was, yeah, yeah. it was primo, light blue, amazing. Um, and and this like first first Toyota of like five that I've owned in my in my life, so like, and even Toyota now, Alexis, that's still, yeah, it's still basically a Toyota, so um,
0: <laughs> no, I yeah. love it. So, you know, that's an interesting uh, kind of point that you made, you know, I kind of want to kind of dive deeper on this front. You're mentioning that, you know, when an individual is kind of going through a lot of hardships, they don't have time to really put others down. And I'm going to ask you a question and kind of get your thoughts on it. Do you think it's the fact that they don't have time or do you think it's the fact that they've gone through these hardships and experienced different emotions, you know, because, you know, if you're rich, you don't really know the feeling of what it's like to be hungry. So when there's maybe a homeless person or something like that, you're kind of...
2: You have more empathy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, you're kind of apathetic and you don't really understand it. So do you think it's the fact that they just had more time to do this? Or do you think it's kind of, you know... Maybe. I
2: mean, I I think it depends on the person, right? Like, I think at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, there are some people that are just just can be mean you know like and honestly i find myself slipping into that sometimes man like when it comes to like political stuff on the internet i can be a complete ass and i and i'm trying really hard (laughs) to change that because you know here's the thing i think like i love sarcasm i think that it's i think that it's a valid way to make a point sometimes i do think and, and i'm speaking mostly about myself here but i do think other people do this too i think that well, I know, because I'm talking about myself, I know that I in the past have used sarcasm as a way to say things that I am apprehensive about saying directly, right? Mm. And I think that there's a danger there of using sarcasm as a crutch to
1: Mm.
2: replace candor. And that's not, that's not who I want to be. You know, maybe there are people who want to be like that. And if that's how you want to operate, cool, man. Like I, you know, I can't control what other people do, but I will say that for for myself, um, I find that, you know, if your goal is to actually change people's minds, then you may want to rethink like being rude and condescending and sarcastic and because it it usually puts people on the defensive. And so like, I don't know. I, I mean, Anyway, kind of a roundabout answer to say, I think it just depends on the person. I think there are some people that just innately are able to like, and, and you know, I'm not going to say that I'm perfect about this, but I will say one thing that I think I'm decent at is I have empathy for people who are going through situations that I myself have not experienced. So I guess you could maybe mm. call it empathy rather than empathy, right? Because I haven't experienced it myself, but like, but man, like I've, I've been through some,
1: Zoom. Shit, you know, yep. like, and just because yep.
2: just because you're, and you're going through isn't the same thing that I've gone through. I I still I feel solidarity for people that are struggling, yeah. right? Like whether that's struggling with mental health because I've been there yep. myself. You know, I yep. will say that I have some, I have some sort of uh, maybe unique perspectives on on suicide just because of what I've been through. Like I will yep. never commit suicide. I don't care how bad yeah. my life gets. Like I don't care if I'm sleeping on the streets. I have I have a keen interest in seeing, you know, man, when I, when I I was a kid, I used to love to read sci-fi. I mean, I still read sci-fi. I don't read as much these days just because I'm so busy, but I would, I would just chew through books. Like I would read a book a day when I was a kid. Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, just, you know, sort of like the, the, the classics. Um, I remember reading these books and thinking like, oh, you know, this stuff sounds so cool. Like going to other planets and like robots and all this stuff. And it all sounded so like far-fetched. You know, and now here we are in 2020 and it's like, you got Elon Musk talking about going to Mars within the next 10 years. You've got (laughs) Boston Dynamics releasing videos of robots doing backflips. Like (laughs) we are, we are on the cusp of like so many, you know, so many changes in our society. I want to be here for as much of that as I can be. I want to witness it. I want to be a part of it as much as I can be. You know, even if it's just, even if that does just end up meaning that I'm like on the sidelines watching, okay, cool. I mean, even if I'm on the sidelines watching as humanity expands to other planets and, and like, and starts to build like functioning robots that. I believe that the next step, you know, once we have functioning robotics, I think the next step is the merging of biology and machine. Like the, you know, you have like Neuralink I think is, is like an early step towards that. Um, I mean, just the advances that we've seen within prosthetics, just within my lifetime, it's clear that we're already, you know, those paths are converging. Right.
1: And so even if I'm just
2: sitting on the sidelines, watching all that happen, how cool is that? Um, I, 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 and I think every generation sort of has this, um, has this idea that like, oh, my my time is special and like this is a special time to be alive. But I think there's a really strong objective argument that can be made that this is the most interesting and innovative time to be alive in all of recorded human history that we know of.
0: Yeah. So I'm just and, happy
2: to be here and, you know.
0: No, Dan, no, I agree. And, and that was actually a really smooth transition. I actually even forgot what we were talking about for a little second before. But, you know, just just to talk on this point, you know, I I agree with you because I mean, let's throw it back, you know, like the internet was invented through this period. You're like not even close to, I don't know, 60 kilometers of me, but you could even be across the world and we could have this conversation right now. The amount of knowledge that can be passed like this is, you know, I think that had a
2: profound. I think that had a profound effect on me as a kid too, because actually, so? and, and maybe we can. Well, maybe we can talk about this too. I guess one Let's thing I didn't mention is that when I was in high school, I was actually super religious and and pretty conservative in a lot of ways. My mm. senior year of high school, I was one of the leaders of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at my at my right. high school. My plans for after high school, I originally wanted to go to um, uh, Bible college and be Whoa. a missionary. And so um, I am not religious at all now. <laughs> uh, it's a, it has been quite a change for me. One one aspect of that, I think, was that you know I got internet access, l- like access to a computer. I got internet access pretty early. Like I started dialing into BBSs at the end of the eighties. Mm. I got a Prodigy account in like 1990, 91, something like that. And then in nineteen ninety two or ninety three or so, um, I got access to the internet itself through uh, through a system called Columbus FreeNet that was a dial in system that allowed um, text-based internet access. I remember doing like, you know, Gopher searches yeah. and like using, using, uh, links as a, I don't know if you're familiar with links. It was like the, the, I, I believe the first or if not the first one of the most popular text-based, uh, web browsers that were out there. So nice. my initial, you know, I've used the internet so long that like there weren't even images when I first started using it. I remember it was a big deal. In fact, yeah, yeah. in I think like 90 94, 95 or so, um, NCSA mosaic, which was sort of mm. the precursor to uh, Netscape navigator. Uh, right. was like the it, I, I i've used that i remember downloading ncsa mosaic browser took forever <laughs> to download um and i remember running it and thinking how Zoom. cool is this that like now yeah. there's an image on the website you know yeah. i mean ag- again you talk about how much things have changed right now here we are 20 years later and it's like yeah there's i mean you've got this like dynamic content and i i mean you could do like virtual reality stuff over the internet like it's it's only getting more advanced, and it's only growing in in scale and and ability and you know potential.
0: It really is. You know, it's it's. I think if we keep on this topic, Dan, we're just gonna we're we're gonna, we're gonna talk forever. I mean, we ah, haven't even hit. How much time Bitcoin you got, yet. man?
2: I know, right? I know. We haven't well, even I hit Bitcoin though, yet. Talking about Bitcoin. Uh, talking about Bitcoin. I think you know. Talking about the internet. I think is a good precursor to talking about Bitcoin. Right? Like, is they are uh Two steps it, of me. One, I love it. one can't really <laughs> well i shouldn't say one can't exist out the other let's just say that i mean because bitcoin actually at this point you could take down the entire internet and there are still ways to broadcast bitcoin transactions via satellite there's a company called blockstream that has satellites in orbit that can broadcast transactions to the bitcoin blockchain um and you can also broadcast them over like ham radio stuff yeah, like yeah. that you know uh so there's plenty of ways that bitcoin He's- could continue to exist if the, if the entire internet went down. But I do think that at the very beginning, it would have been very hard for Bitcoin to have come into being and, and had gained acceptance or any kind of scale without the internet. So I would I would call the internet a precursor technology to to Bitcoin, for sure.
0: For sure. So, you know, Dan, l- let's talk about your journey with Bitcoin because you're mentioning that, you know, Bitcoin played a pivotal role in your life. And I want you to take me to that first point. When did you hear about it? What did you do? How did it affect you?
2: Sure. So I'm going to go back a little bit before I first heard about Bitcoin because I feel like that the conversation about Bitcoin um, sort of fits within a broader conversation about personal finance, right? And so I I never got any kind of financial education growing up. My parents um, rented until my stepdad's mom died and then just literally left him a house. So I never you know, I never really got lessons. And, and I'm not, you're know, not blaming my parents for this, right? Like, I think this is a pretty standard story for a lot of Americans, yep. probably a lot of people in most first world countries. Um, I don't know about Canada, but like, here, here in America, they don't have any kind of classes in school about personal Same. finance, anything like that. And so, you know, I had no foundation for that stuff. And uh, when I turned 18, like a lot of 18 year olds, I started getting inundated with credit card offers, right? I got a yep. Capital One credit card with like a, $250 limit which I immediately maxed out and then stopped paying on and so right. I had Zoom. credit for like pretty much all of my, my 20s I mean I couldn't even get credit cards I would have to I, the only credit cards that I could get were um, prepaid well not prepaid right. more like you they're they're like we'll give you a 500 hundred dollar credit limit if you send us a check for 500 dollars, and then if you mm. if you don't do that up after like a year or two we'll give it back to you that that right, was right. the type of credit that i could get extended to me i think at one point my credit score was in like low 500s like it was not right. not good and that was pretty much how it was for most of my 20s and and that was you know that was challenging man like um and, and I guess it's probably uh, another thing to call out, again, if we're talking about things that like these kind of seeds that got planted that eventually ended up making me very interested in Bitcoin. When I was 23, I, uh, I, I got my first IT job in like 1999. So I was about 19 years old. I worked in IT for a couple of years and mm-hmm. then dot-com bust happened. I didn't have a college degree. I had a hard time finding work in IT. And so I actually right. spent about, about two to three years in the early 2000s working as a bill collector
1: zoom just
2: oh terrible work man i hated it i
1: hated
2: it uh well first of all you're making eight bucks an hour nine bucks an hour like so you don't have very much money yourself and then you're calling Mm. people who also don't have money and trying to get money out of them so like uh you ever heard the phrase blood from a stone
0: no i haven't tell me
2: well so blood from a stone means like it's it's sort of a way to say like that's a futile thing right like Yeah, yeah you're it's an exercise in futility and yeah. so calling calling people that are severely delinquent on their bills and trying to get them to give you money you would have more luck getting blood from a stone you know <laughs> squeezing a stone and getting blood out. so yeah. anyway so the last like the last year or so that i worked as a bill collector i actually worked for loop as mm-hmm. a mortgage collector so i was calling people that were like in the process of getting evicted from their uh, for foreclosed on their homes and uh Just like, just soul-sucking work, man. I mean, you're basically spending eight hours a day, five days a week talking to people that are about to be homeless. Uh, Because I mean, the sad reality is, is that, you know, if you get foreclosed on, it's not like you can just go and rent a place. A lot of places won't rent to you if you've just gone through a foreclosure because it wrecks your credit. And so I just, you know, I struggled with that a lot, man, because I was not, you know, I was living on my own. I was in my early twenties. I wasn't making very much money. So I didn't have a lot of money. I was struggling to, to, you know, pay my rent. And then I got to go into work and talk to people that are basically in an even worse situation. Like, Zoom. man, I, I i would, there That's were days where I would, I would cry. Like, I'd go home and cry. Like, I just felt so broken. And I felt like that I was contributing to an evil system, right? Like, mm. I mean, which I guess you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to get in a conversation about like the merits of capitalism. I do think that capitalism has some merits. I think that For these sure. are kind of the kinds of situations though where like the real like heartlessness of capitalism is sort of revealed, right? This idea yep. of like um, like I was listening to um, uh, what Bitcoin did. It's uh, Peter McCormick's uh, podcast. I don't know if you're familiar okay. with that. It's like one of the most popular Bitcoin podcasts, and I like a lot of the stuff that Peter himself talks about. But man, some of his guests are just they're a little out there. Like he had this like super libertarian guy on there that was talking about his like ideal, like libertarian anarchic society, you know? And he said, he said this thing at one point that he's like, he's like, well, yeah, you know, in our country, you can either work or starve. Wow. And I was just like, Whoa, like, man, that's, I mean, honestly, I got to say I uh, props to him for being so honest, because I don't think that a lot of libertarians would just outright say that because I think most of them probably have the mental acuity, we'll call it, or, or like uh, awareness to yep. to realize that that is in callous as hell, and it makes you sound like an evil. Zoom. P- yeah. um, but like that's pretty much what I felt like. I felt like that I was in a position where, like, you know, I was I was telling people to, you know, one of the things that we were supposed to tell people was to like call their friends and ask to borrow money so that they weren't going to yeah. be homeless. You know, and so anyway, I did that for like a year, year and a half. And, and then I think they were trying to cut expenses because they started this program where you could take as many days off as you wanted, but they were just unpaid. Yep. And so I started taking days off here and there. And then that eventually just turned into like, just not going into work anymore, just because I was just done with it. Yeah. And uh, anyway, long story short, I left. They, uh, they gave me my last check. Uh, Direct deposit into my bank, which I I banked with a bank that was actually in the process of acquiring at the time. Oh, yeah. A regional bank called uh, Loop. And so this was during the process that they were acquiring Loop. So they deposited my last paycheck into my Bank One account. And then about 28 days later, they took it all back. Wow. They did not call me. They did not send me a letter. You know, this was a little bit before people were using email a lot. So we'll say, you know, a phone call or a letter would have been great. They had my phone number and my address they could have done either or both but they chose not to and uh obviously i had spent some of that money in the 28 days between when they paid me and when they took it back yep. uh, they claim they overpaid me by the way but I, you know i kept such bad records at that point i i don't think that's true but i couldn't prove it one way or the other Yep. Anyway, it ended up throwing me about 500 600 bucks under the negative after all the fees nope. and everything, which I could not afford at that point because I, I didn't have a job. I literally just walked out of my job, which, you know, that's, that's on me. That was a bad choice on my part. But I, anyway, the long story short, it ended up going to check systems. I don't know if you guys have that up in Canada. Basically, that? like a it's like a credit bureau but for checking ac- – or for bank accounts. Mm, so, like, okay. if you have a bank account and it goes into the negative and you don't pay it off, Eventually, I think after about like five to six months or so, the bank writes that off and then they submit you to check systems. Once you are on check systems, you're there for three years and most banks, there are some banks now, I think that are a little less stringent about this. 15 years ago though, there were no banks that would open an account for you if you had a record on check systems. So I spent three years from about 2004 to 2007, I spent three years without a bank account i couldn't open one i can't tell you how
0: annoying
2: that was man yeah well bitcoin didn't exist then right so like so i had to go to check cashing places to cash my payroll checks i had to pay a five percent fee for every payroll check that i cashed for that three years until i i will say uh, because i like to talk to people and i'm i i just make connections with people that's what i do i didn't end up finding a bodega owner about a block from my house at the time that was that said he would cash my check for one dollar or he'd waive that if i bought something there and so i'd usually just go and buy like I'd buy like some beer and yeah you know buy a beer and cash my paycheck basically um but like everything i mean other things too man like paying my paying my electric bill right because i didn't yeah. have checks and so I, uh, at one point a money order got lost. And so I stopped using money orders because that sucks to buy a money order for like a hundred, 150 bucks. And then it just vanishes. That money's gone. And yeah. so I started using, um, you know, I would like go to the the customer service counter at the grocery store and pay my bills that way in cash. But again, there's a fee, you know, or you're using like Western digital, there's a fee, everything is a yeah. fee. And it's like, you know, they're, they're nickel and diming, the people who don't have nickels and dimes, um, yeah. So I think that, that I, I wasn't a huge fan of banks to begin with. Right. Like before yeah. that, if you asked me like, what do you think of banks? I would have been like,
1: eh, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah. And Dan, it's interesting. You mentioned that. I remember watching a documentary, I believe it was on YouTube. I can't remember the name for the life of me right now, but it was actually talking about that. You know, the people that don't know how banks work and the people who don't have money to begin with are the people that are actually funding the majority of the banks. Pay- well, I can't say that, but a decent chunk of it. it's a lot
2: yeah well it's the same thing with taxes man like i don't know about canada but here in the states we have so many freaking loopholes that if you're rich and you've got somebody that knows how to exploit those loopholes yep i mean look at donald trump man the guy paid the guy paid what 750 bucks in taxes in like 2015 and 2016 Mm. or i'm probably getting the years wrong i'm sure i'm sure somebody will send you uh, an email talking about what an idiot i am and how i got all that wrong (laughs) but you know it's like when when you've got billionaires which I you know he's at least a millionaire so let's just say he's a millionaire you got millionaires paying less in taxes than people who are just above the poverty line I think there's a real problem with that yep right and and I think that uh you know anyway so like that I think definitely in part set the stage for me of getting into bitcoin uh, several years later so that was about Starting around 2007, I could open bank accounts again. So since okay. then, for the last 13 years, I've exclusively used um, credit unions. I will not bank with large banks anymore. Mm. I just, I won't do it. The only exception is that if I have to, right? Like ironically, sure. my mortgage is now owned by Loop, which I'm not actually happy about. We got it originally through a, um, a regional bank here in the Pacific Northwest. And after a year, they sold it to Loop. Me, and I was honestly really pissed um, yep. because I, if, if, if I had my say... I would never do business with nope. you again for the rest of my life.
0: Fuck. So, you know, Dan, we're, we're nearing kind of almost an hour right now. And we still haven't got into your story about Bitcoin or the fact that you actually ran yeah, yeah. for yeah. election, you know? So, like, sure. let's kind of try to talk about the main points just going over yeah. there. Because I have a bunch of questions I want to ask you because I'm interested ah, sure. in this, right? So, Yeah, let's you know, talk
2: about Bitcoin first, maybe, if that, if that works for you, just because I feel like we sure. sort of set the stage.
0: Yeah. So is it fair to say that you had a lot of financial hardships and, you know, you just weren't a fan of the banking system? How did you discover Bitcoin? Is there anything in between that you want to add or? Yeah.
2: So I first, I first heard about Bitcoin in, I want to say early 2011. Mm. Uh, and, and in fact, I think it was right around the time that I lost my job in April, 2011. I'll, I'll have, to, I'd have to look up the exact date, but I remember yeah. I used to be a big Slashdot reader. I don't know if you're familiar with Slashdot. No, what's it's a uh, Slashdot is like, a. it, um, their tagline used to be, it may still be, I, I haven't read the site in a while, but their tagline used to be news for nerds, stuff that matters. So it's sort <laughs> of a, it's sort of like Reddit, but with a very strong Techn- technical bent, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, um, and they ran a front page story when one Bitcoin hit parity with the U S dollar. So one Bitcoin equals $1. All
0: times has changed. I remember
1: reading that (laughs) uh,
2: right. I know. I remember reading that article. And I thought, that's cool. What is Bitcoin? And I looked it up. And it was basically like my takeaway from it at that point, which is probably mostly accurate given the time frame, was that, oh cool, people are using this to buy drugs online. Then I read that you could mine it on your computer. Mm. And I briefly considered mining bitcoin on my computer which at the time i don't know if you're familiar with um seti at home or folding at home no what's up it's basically um so folding folding at home SETI at home they're basically programs that you run on your computer that uh you can run them as your screensaver so when your screensaver kicks on it downloads packets of information from the internet and then processes them for folding at home it's doing as the name would imply protein folding so you're basically running simulations on like I'm not a biologist. I don't actually know what the protein folding is. I think it has something (laughs) to do with like, like how certain, you know, chemicals interact with, with maybe like draw, I don't know. But it's, you're Mm -hmm. basically running like simulation, like biological simulations using your computer's processing power. It's a distributed network, right? So you've got this entire network of computers. It's sort of like a botnet, except people like know that they're doing it. Anyway, so that was when I first heard about Bitcoin was when one Bitcoin equals one U.S. dollar and given everything else that was going on in my life, right? 2011 was a crazy year for me. I moved 2000 miles. I lost, you know, somebody that I deeply loved and just, Mm -hmm. it it just wasn't on my radar at all for that year or really the year after even once I got settled into Portland though, um, as, as you may guess, I'm a big Redditor, right? That's how you, that's how we connected. And so, um, I used to be very active on the Portland subreddit when I lived there. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy that posted towards the end of 2013, there was a guy that posted and he said, Hey, I drive a Nissan Leaf electric car, right? Electric car that only has like a 70 mile range. Yeah. Um, and I want to take a road trip to Utah, but I don't want to pull over and charge my car every you know hour. And so I'm hoping to find somebody who has a hybrid that they would be willing to trade with my wife and I for like two weeks while we're in taking this road trip to Utah. Well, at the time I, I worked at a job in downtown Portland that had, um, Free electric vehicle charging in the parking lot, and so I and and I and I go. was also kind of interested in buying a Leaf, and I thought, Zoom, this is great. I can get first of all free, you know, free gas at yep. my at my company. They can charge my car for me while I'm at work five days a week, and I get to like have an extended test drive of this car that I'm thinking about buying before I bought one. Mm-hmm. and so um so i i responded and said hey man I've, I, oh and i had a, a prius i drove a prius at the time and so i i commented and i was like hey i'm super interested in checking out your leaf and i have a prius with you know low mileage super reliable car i'd be more than willing to do this but i'd like to you know i'd like to meet first right like i want to make sure yeah. you're not like a
0: zoom weird or
2: something you know or at least no more weird than i am don't damage the car <laughs> yep exactly <laughs> and so we uh I, I worked in downtown Portland at the time, and I worked a couple of blocks away from a. Uh, give another shout out here. I worked a couple of blocks away from this awesome pizza place in downtown Portland called Old Town Pizza, mm. and so uh, I met up with this guy in Old Town Pizza, and we had lunch and we talked about Bitcoin. He he mentioned it. He brought it up, and right. I had heard of it. And so like, and and uh, this was right after the like thirteen hundred dollar spike. Like Bitcoin had gone from like two hundred bucks to like thirteen hundred you know, huge, uh, uh, like huge bubble, kind of like 2017, as far as like the percentage increase. If you look at the chart, it was like that, you know, that, um, that like severe, uh, parabolic increase. And so, um, we chatted about it for a while at that lunch. And then at the end he said, Hey man, how would you feel about paying for our lunch on your credit card or, you know, however you want or whatever. And I'll, I'll give you my half in Bitcoin and mm. i was i was all about that and like hell yeah man i made i made okay money at the time whatever it's like i think our lunch was like 30 bucks with the pizza and the beer and all that stuff so you're basically talking about like 15 you yeah, know, yeah. worth of bitcoin i said hell yeah man let's let's do it and we did and uh and we ended up and, and then we traded cars and they came back and we ended up staying in touch like we you know we became friends like i i really liked him he seemed yeah. he was a nice guy he's like a tech guy uh um, we have we have a similar story he actually grew up as a, a mormon Um, but but is no longer religious and so like i I wasn't a mormon but i was also devoutly religious in the past and no longer am so we had like a few things that we kind of bonded over we're still friends to this day seven years later and uh that's what really got me into bitcoin so after that was december of 2013 by january i had bought my first bitcoin on coinbase not not a full bitcoin but like you know 50 bucks worth of bitcoin at the time that i got into bitcoin it was i want to say when i first got into it, it was about half of that that initial that like previous peak so it was around six 700 bucks right and i was i was like hell yeah man like because in my mind i'm like okay it's gonna go back to 1300 so i'm gonna buy as much as i can i bought a bunch of it at like six 700 bucks i mean a bunch yep. for me at the time i wasn't making a lot of money but for me i you know i bought a decent amount of bitcoin i probably had about a thousand two thousand dollars worth. Hmm. and then it dropped it dropped to like, like 250 and uh I freaked out, man, because I had never done any kind of investing before. I had never done any kind of investing before at all. I mean, yeah. beyond just a, beyond a very small amount of money in a 401k that I had actually cashed out um, right around that time because wow. I ended up getting fired. I, I got fired from my job yep. after I tried to start a union. Uh, so that was that was oh, a fun geez. time. Um, and so I found myself out of work and, and Bitcoin dropped like right after that. And so I freaked out and I sold it all at a huge loss, right? Like I sold yeah. it for like less than half of what I paid for it. Yeah. Then it went back up. It went back up to like five, six hundred bucks. Then it went up to like eight hundred, and then it went back down. And it's like so basically, I mean, in the time that I've been involved, Bitcoin has been as low as like like mid two hundreds. I think two twenty five is the yep. lowest price per Bitcoin that I've ever paid. And then just a few years later, it was at twenty grand. So like I <laughs> have personally been involved with Bitcoin while it has gone one hundred x. So. Yep. 200 bucks to 2000 to 20,000. And I think that was what really sold me. Like I wasn't, I wasn't really, uh, and I hesitate to use this word just because of the religious connotations, but I wasn't a true believer. Until yep. 2017, like I had Bitcoin, yep. I had a little bit of Bitcoin. Ironically, when we bought our house four years ago in November, 2016, I tried to talk my wife into, because I knew that the having was, had happened right in 2016. Yep. And I thought that there might be an increase in 2017. I didn't think it was going to be anything like it ended up being. I was thinking yeah. maybe Bitcoin will go to like five ten thousand $10,000, something like that. And so I told my wife in November of 2016, I said, Hey, we have about $15,000 for our house down payment. Bitcoin was under a 1000 bucks at the time by the way. I said let's take that money and so let's buy Bitcoin with it and hold it for 1 year. That way we'll hmm. hold it a little a little over 1 year and then we'll sell it. That way we don't have to pay we'll get long-term capital gains tax instead of short-term. And then, you know, then we'll use that as our house down payment. Now, yep. if she had listened to me, we could have bought our house in cash we could like not have a mortgage <laughs> now but I, I yep. you know I do want to be clear though that honestly that probably wasn't the best idea like because it yep. would have been purely speculative right That's and okay. more than half of that down payment was her money so uh, ultimately <laughs> Fair like, enough. we ended up buying the house and then I spent most of 2017 trying to restack the bitcoin that I had cashed out to, to buy the house um mm. and so I didn't really have any much I didn't have much when the crazy 2017 year happened right i've spent the years since then though i have been buying bitcoin like crazy between 2018 and 2020 because i strongly suspect that we're about to see a repeat or you know what's that what's that saying um history doesn't uh repeat but it often rhymes i think we're about to see a hmm. sort of parallel movement um in 2021 that will I don't know that it'll be, you know, percentage-wise, the same kind of increase that we saw in 2017, but I do think that when you look at the chart, you're going to see a near parabolic uh, move by, by oh. the end of 2021. And I could be wrong. You know, I don't yeah. have a crystal ball. Bitcoin could just as easily go to five, 10 grand again. I do yep. think, though, that, you know, one thing that I've noticed um, from a sentiment standpoint, there's definitely a lot of, like, bigger money getting in, right? Like, earlier this year, uh, what's his name? Paul Tudor Jones who's a sort of famed, famed investor who, as I understand it, he got his, uh, his reputation or sort of made his name by uh, shorting the stock market right before a huge crash in the 80s. Yeah. So he's very well known as, as a guy who, you know, a lot of people listen to what he says. And sure. uh, he, you know, he made a big statement earlier this year when he said he put, I think it was only like 1% or 2% or something like that of his assets into Bitcoin. But, you know, when you're talking about somebody who's a billionaire, right, 1% to 2%, I mean, it's a substantial amount of money. Yep. I think, you know, we've seen companies start to do similar. Uh, Michael Saylor at MicroStrategy uh, invested, I think, something like 10% of their um, their fiat reserves into Bitcoin. Wow. Uh, Square Square Cash App invested $50 million of their cash reserves into Bitcoin. I mean, when you look at, yes, Bitcoin is volatile, obviously, but when you look at a chart yeah. of Bitcoin purchasing power over the last 10 years, and then look at a chart of the U.S. dollars purchasing power over the next 10 years or the last 10 years. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, that's not obviously it's not a guarantee that the next 10 years will mirror that. But I do think that there's a much stronger argument for the retention of purchasing power. I, I, I've i been telling anybody that'll listen that, you know, maybe maybe you don't trust Bitcoin. Maybe you think that it's hot air. Maybe you think that it's based on nothing. Maybe you think that it's all mm-hmm. a scam or a Ponzi scheme or a multi-level marketing scheme. Those are all criticisms that I've heard about Bitcoin over the last seven years. But yet it persists. And it not Mm. only persists, but it grows. And it continues to grow. More and more people are interested every day. It's not going away. So to those people who are skeptical, I would ask you to consider that maybe there are things that other people are seeing that you are not. Hmm. And that if you are in a position where you can take one... So we'll just say one to five percent it depends on the person right It depends on what your investment profile is it depends on how much risk sure. you're willing to take. But if you have investments already right if you're at the stage of your life where you're making investments, I think that I personally think that it's unwise to not have a position in Bitcoin even if it's a small sure. like one to five percent. Yep. I at this point the the asymmetric returns that people have gotten you know even investing one percent of your of your overall yep. investment portfolio into Bitcoin that could you know a few years down the line that could be end up being like ten to twenty percent of your portfolio yep. and if you don't believe in Bitcoin at that point then cash it out redistribute it you know redistribute your exactly. portfolio so that you're back to one percent exposure to Bitcoin and take your profits and that's fine absolutely I, I mean personally I don't do that I I have not sold a single Bitcoin since like. Uh, for for like five years, uh, yep. and and so I don't, you know, I don't plan on selling for a while. My hope is that, um, and and I do have some traditional investments. I want to be clear; I'm not just fully banking on Bitcoin. I will say yep. I'm probably a little over leveraged on it as as compared to my other investments. Sure. I actually cashed out my 401k earlier this year, and <laughs> uh, and put it all into Bitcoin um which is probably not something that most people should do yeah i look here here's the way that i think of it man i'm gonna be really honest with you up until like up until like five years ago i'd say up until the age of 35 Mm. my plan a my plan a was to work until the day i died right because i didn't grow up with money i didn't start making investments until later in life right so like i just sort of assumed that like well yeah i have a i have a small 401k but like I'm not going to live off of that. There's nobody, you know, I couldn't live off of that for even a year. So yeah. like, I'm just going to have to work until the day I die. And that was my plan mm. A for like <laughs> most of my life, right? Yeah. Because I mean, here in the States, my generation, we've all been told that there's not going to be any social security by the time I'm ready to retire. Yeah. And and so like, I had just sort of prepared myself for that. Now, you know, now I would say that's like my plan C. Plan C is to work until I die. Plan A is yeah. to retire within the next 10 years from, from Whoa. my Bitcoin investments plan B is to retire within the next 20 years from my traditional investments. So like, I hope to be retired at the age of 60 by the latest. Um, we'll see, you know, how that ends up working out. One, one thing that we didn't touch on too, I think another thing that kind of set the stage for me getting into Bitcoin, mm. I did, I mentioned that I had Zoom. credit for most of my twenties, um, yep. at about the age of 30, I just, I. It was actually right before Katie died, about a year before Katie died. I just I, I just got sick of like not being able to get any credit. You know, it's like I couldn't mm. get a car loan. I couldn't get a credit card. I, I had trouble renting places, uh, it, yep. it, you know, years before that. My credit had improved a little bit by that point. So I could at least like get an apartment, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, I just got tired of it, man. And I said, you know, some, something has got to change. Like, what do I need to do to like get on top of this? And so um, I kind of, I worked out a system. Again, like most things in my life, mostly through trial and error, I worked at a system where I have a bill calendar now and, and Mm. I've kept it up for almost a decade. What I did was I just used Google calendar. I created a, you know how you can create like multiple calendars in Google. I created a calendar just for my bills, or I call it financial. And on that calendar, I list my paydays on the calendar by, you know, every day that I get paid. And on that payday, I also have a calendar event for every single bill that gets paid on that payday. When I get paid, I go down, I go down the list and I literally, I will double click on each one as I pay it and I will change it to, to put paid at the end. I just append paid at the end. So that way I can see at one. a glance, which of my bills have been paid, which of my bills need to be paid, you know, and it has changed my life. I mean, I went from, I have a terrible memory. Right. And so that's, I think that was really, it's, it's not that I didn't want to pay my bills. Right. Like I wanted to pay my bills. I didn't want to be a deadbeat. I, you know, like I, I don't like owing people money. It's a bad position to be in. It makes me feel bad, but the, the like the will was there, but like the follow through, I just, I didn't, I didn't have the tools required to follow through. So, you know, I found something that works for me and, and honestly, it works so well that, um, if it had just been me, I, I would be hesitant to even say like, oh, you know, do, like do this and it'll probably help. But uh, when my wife and I started dating seven years ago, she had terrible credit. Her credit mm. was, I think, like, it was like mine was, it was like low 500s, you know, at, at its worst point. Um, her credit score is like 810 now, dude. Like her credit is wow. actually better than mine. My credit is like high 700s. Hers is 810. And, wow. and it's because of that same thing. I, we did the same thing for her that we've done for me. And over the last seven years, we took her credit from, you know, bottom tier to, I mean, she's seven years younger than me. So she has, uh, she has better credit than like 99% of people her age. And it is literally just from having the discipline to like figure out which bills need to be paid on which paychecks, write them out, and then just meticulously stick to that every payday. Um, It works. It absolutely works. And. And if I had not done that, man, if I had not made those steps, I think before I got into Bitcoin several years later, I don't think I would have been in the position to really do anything with Bitcoin because I wouldn't have had any extra money. You know, I paid so many, I paid so much money in bank fees over the years, man, like overdrafting my accounts and stuff, you know, I just wouldn't have had it available.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's a, I was watching another documentary and they were mentioning that the reason why they have such odd dates for banking is so people forget. (laughs) Right. Oh, you know, it's, there's still many sketchy
2: of... things, man. I mean, yeah.
0: like,
2: I don't think they're allowed to do this by law anymore for the longest time they could put through. Like if you had a bunch of pending transactions, they could put through the most expensive one first. And so like, just mm. to so, so give you an example of how that works. Let's say you had a thousand bucks in your account. Right. And let's say you had, let's say you had 10 transactions pending. One of them was for $800 and then the other nine were for a hundred right? So if they put those nine, those nine charges for hundred dollars through first, then you'd still have a hundred bucks left when that $800 charge goes through and right. you'd only get one overdraft fee. Instead, what they do is they put the $800 charge first so that now you've got only $200 available. And then they put two of the $200 payments through, right? And now you've got seven, $700 payments left yeah, and every single one of them gets you a $35, $40 overdraft fee. That is not an accident.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: there's some, there is some zoom out there who came up with that system on purpose. And then every single bank did it for like decades. And yeah. so, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know that you could get in any, any, I don't know that you could ask for a clearer lesson that these people are not your friends and they're not looking out for you your interests in any way
0: yeah no it, it, it's crazy yeah the banking system's just uh it, it's interesting because you know it's something that everyone has to do yet we don't get taught in school and you know i think in north america i don't know if you'd agree with me but talking about money is just kind of frowned upon a little bit as well you know like how much you make how to make more yep. money and even like if the money good or bad and it it's a shame because you know It's such a big part of our life. And since it's frowned upon to have these conversations, you know, for example, you're mentioning the union job, right? Like you stood up and you're like, yeah, we need, we need better rights and fired. And then, you know, I don't know the exact story behind it, but it could be labeled as, Oh, that's just, you know, that's just political or something like that. Well, (laughs) it waited
2: months actually. So we tried to, we, we had the union vote in like November of 2013. And then uh, they fired me in May of 2013 and they, They fired me on May 1st, which is May Day. That is an international workers' holiday, by the way. Mm. And again, I don't think that that was an accident. And I've had people ask, well, how do you know that they knew it was May Day? Well, that's an easy one because our offices were in downtown Portland, where every single year on May Day, there is a massive May Day protest to the point where the Portland Business Alliance sends out uh reminders and warnings to businesses letting them know that there will be massive throngs of people there for mayday protests so they definitely knew and it was also a thursday so it's not like it just happened to coincide with like the end of the like friday or anything like that yeah. fired me on mayday six months after we tried to unionize um to send a message you know message no. received. <laughs> that, Fair uh, enough. Country, by the way it's a like, loop which ironically is a non that works in the education sector. You would think that, you know, would be maybe a little more <clears throat> uh, workers' rights friendly. But so it is. Uh,
0: no. I just want- hey, everyone. Thank you for finishing part one of Dan's amazing story in life. Now, we're going to go into part two. But just as a little trailer, a little preview to get you fired up, we're going to be talking... About Bitcoin. We're going to take a deep dive into it, what to expect, how to do Bitcoin right, and why you should give it a chance. Beyond this, we talk about the different lessons that Dan has learned in his life and how he can help you with those lessons, such as how to be financially free, how to set goals, and how to accomplish things that you want in life. If this sounds good to you, or you just want to hear about how this guy ran for the 2016 election in the United States, stay tuned. And without further ado, Thank you so much. And we'll hit our outro. Hey, everyone. Parham back after another amazing episode with another amazing guest. We hope we added value into your life so you could take the tips from this episode and fuel your process forward. If you enjoyed our episode today and think other friends or family members may also appreciate the lessons that our podcast brings, be sure to share us with them. Subscribe and rate our show so we know how we did. And always remember, trust the process.